There we go. Good to see you guys. Uh, my name's uh, Phil Adams. I serve as a pastor here at Park Rogers Park. It is my joy um, to do that, serve along our elders and deacons and the team um, here. Firstly, didn't Lincoln just do an incredible job? I think she read that about as well as it could possibly read. Thank you, Lincoln, for coming up here and doing that. Um, we are in a series right now, um, studying through, working through um, old, old great stories in the Old Testament. And um, if you've been following along with us, you'll know that there's just some incredible stories in God's Word that really compel us, that really draw us in. And Lincoln read one of those, or part of one of those stories uh, today. If you don't know um, the background to what Lincoln read this morning, there's something gripping about the scene that she read that, that, that depicts um, in those 17 verses of a man pleading uh, with his queen uh, to risk her life before the king for the sake of their people. At first, this queen pauses to recognize the likelihood of impending death if she is to act, but by the end of those 17 verses that Lincoln read, she, she has gained clarity that she will that she is going to act, that she will risk her life, that the risk is right, and if she perishes in her effort, so be it. But what we're going to do over the next two weeks is we're going to be looking at two halves of this story. The, the overarching theme of the book of Esther is whenever everything seems to be going wrong with the, the trajectory of our circumstances, when they seem to be going down and down and down and getting darker and darker and darker and nothing in our lives seems to be going right, still in those circumstances, Rogers Park, there is one who is ruling and there is one who is reigning over all. Amen? The book of Esther was written as a whole to be an inspirational reminder that when God sees fit, when God seems right through means that we could not make up or means that we could not, cannot control, God will turn the tables on that which stands against his people. In fact, the very expression, the tables have turned, comes originally from this book of the Bible. Despite God never being directly mentioned in this book, the book of Esther is about when all seems to have been lost, when disaster seems inevitable, but somehow, in some way, the tide turns and what was a crisis that was engulfing us becomes a story to tell of redemption, of God's redemption of us. And we're going to be looking even more directly at that main theme next Sunday, so come back and be with us then. But first, this week, we're going to look at the, the primary human character in this story. The book of Esther is ultimately about the invisible and sovereign hand of God, but the book of Esther is also about a young lady who finds herself behind the walls of a palace where she is cut off from her family, she is cut off from her people, and yet she is positioned precisely where she needs to be for the good of her people, for the future of her people. So let's pray before we jump in. God, we uh, come to you this morning. God, you are why we are here. You are why we are gathered. God, we want to experience your presence in our lives, your leading and your gui guiding. So God, we come and we come to your word, God, knowing that is there, there is power. There's there, there is deliverance and there is healing. So God, I pray, God, that you would move in our hearts and our lives today. I pray that we will leave today changed by the power of your spirit, knowing how to better be your people, how to grow in Christ-likeness. God, I pray, God, a love for your word would not stop in this sermon, but I pray, God, that we would go out and we would search scripture for truth, God, and we would love your word. So God, would you build that up within us today, I pray in your name, amen. In Esther, Esther chapter 1, verse 4, we read of a man called 
Mordecai, who has just learned of some news that has broken, that has broken him. It says, Mordecai tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, which was a culturally appropriate way of, of expressing grief and mourning, and he, he goes public with his anguish. It says, it says he went out into the middle of the city, he went out into the middle of the neighborhood, and he sat beside the entrance to the king's palace where, where he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. And he wasn't alone in this. In verse 3 of Esther chapter 4, it says, In every province there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And so what has happened? What has brought an entire, entire people group or an entire ethnicity to, to their knees in, in grief? In Esther chapter 1, we, we see the period of history that this story occurred within. In chapter 1, verse 1, it begins, Now in the days of King Azurius, telling us this, king, this, this story occurred during the reign of a Persian king. This Persian king is more commonly known, and even some of your Bibles will be translated as King Xerxes. If you've seen the movie 300, there's a big bad Persian king in that movie. That is the king that's in our passage today. And this king, King Xerxes, which is the Hebrew name, or Xerxes, which is the Persian name, this king reigns over, at the time, the largest empire that the world has known to date. This was a powerful, powerful ruler. In chapter 1 of Esther, his power and his wealth and his grandeur is, is emphasized in how he throws three feasts in the very first chapter of the book. One of those feasts lasts for 180 days. This guy knows how to throw a good party. And he was set up with his wealth and his power by his predecessor, who was called King Cyrus. And King Cyrus expanded the Persian emperor by conquering over the Babylonian empire. Consequently, everything that existed under the Babylonian empire became property of the Persian empire. And you may know that the Babylonian empire was the empire to which Israel had been taken into exile. And so a hundred years have now passed, and although the Jews have been allowed to return and go back to Israel... Many Jews still chose to remain in the Persian Empire. And two of those who remain, take, they take center stage in the book of Esther. Esther herself and her older cousin, Mordecai. That's the, the historical context underlying this book of the Bible. And so in chapter 1, not only the, the king's power and grandeur is em emphasized in chapter 1, a scandal occurs. And this scandal, it, it sets the stage for the rest of the book. In chapter 1, verse 12, to, to, to the dismay of the king, his queen, Queen Vashti, she outright refuses to join him during one of the feasts. It's suspected that the, the queen's refusal was because of the demeaning way that the king wanted to parade her in front of other, of other men and rulers in the kingdom. But the queen's refusal to come to the king sets off a chain of events. First, Queen Vashti, the first thing that happens is Queen Vashti is banished from ever again appearing before the king. And it sounds like she would have been quite happy with that outcome. But now the king needs a new queen. So how does a Persian king in 500 BC enter into the, the dating game? Well, he, he brings the dating game to himself. With the advice of his advisors in chapter 2, verse 3, he orders that young and beautiful women that are known throughout the empire should be brought to his palace where they would spend an entire year in preparation to spend a night with the king. After which the king would make a decision whether he wanted to meet with them again or not. 
And it says in chapter 2, verse 8, that Esther was taken as one of these women to be prepared and to be brought before the king. And what becomes clear or, or more pronounced here is the way that Esther is depicted at the beginning of this story. We see in verse 7 that, that her parents have died. She, she has been raised in exile by a cousin. There's no mention of any further extended family, brothers that are looking out for her. And especially there are these numerous passive verbs that emphasize to Esther things happen rather than Esther being one who makes things happen. Did you get that? These, these passive verbs that are throughout chapter 2 make a point of emphasis to Esther things happen rather than Esther being the one who makes things happen. In, in verse 8, she is taken to the palace, obscuring any reference to her, her, her own motive in going. In verse 9, she was advanced, obscuring any acknowledgement of any contribution she made to her own advancement. In verse 10, her silence is noted. She did not mention that she was a Jew. And then again in verse 15, her silence is noted for a second time in that when asked if she had any special requests in preparation to meet the king, she didn't have any. Then in verse 11, it's mentioned that Mordecai went to the court not to learn what Esther was doing, but to learn what was happening to her. Then in verse 17, after Esther has spent a year in preparation, she spends a night with the king, and it says he loved Esther more than any other woman. She won grace and favor in his sight, and so he set a royal crown on her head. And so we get this picture of Queen Esther right up to the moment of her coronation as this passive quiet young lady. And notice this, her, her passivity stands out further in how she, she contrasts sandwich between Queen Vashti and Mordecai. On one side in chapter one, we find Queen Vashti, the defiant ex-queen who refused to be belittled. And then on the other side in chapter three, we find Mordecai who refuses defiantly to bow before him and one of the king's officials. And then we get to chapter 2, in the middle is sandwiched Esther, who refuses nothing, who asks for nothing, who says nothing. And this, this has brought into play a lot of, lot of interesting interpretations of this story, that, that Esther is this young girl who, who doesn't kick up a fuss, who enters the beauty pageant not to, too concerned about her people or her pride. She doesn't seem to have much to say or much to stand for. And the reason she, she's taken to the king in the first place is not her intellect or her, her ability to carry out stimulating conversations. No, in chapter 2, verse 7, the reason she was chosen was she had a beautiful figure and she was lovely to look at. And it's not hard to understand why there, there are interpretations of Esther's story that, that, that portray her passivity in the estimation of some as, some, as nothing more than, the, the, than a negative personality trait. She'll be okay, but she's just got some growing up to do. She needs to take a leaf out of Queen Vashti's book, and she'll be all right. All through this lens of the story, it seems to be a kind of coming-to-age story that we're reading. We like that, don't we? Empowerment. Stories of, how, of our own increasing empowerment or, or stories of others finding themselves empowered. We like pointing people to, to be more than it looks they are and more than they know themselves to be. 
Speak up more, Esther. Don't be, don't be so timid. Fill up some more space. Forget those beauty pageants. Find your voice. Esther, little girls are watching you. Represent. Look, look at women like Vashti. Look at men like Mordecai. Don't settle for a life happening to you. Take the reins. Get in the driving seat. Let's go, Esther. In chapter 3, the tension and the, and the intrigue within this story, they, they, they step up a gear. Actually, this story is, is famous for how it holds the tension for so long. There's, there's an ongoing sense of uncertainty. Chapter 3 starts off with the king elevating a man called Haman to a high position in government. And as would have been customary, when, when Haman passed through the streets, the people would have had to bow their heads in homage to him. But, but Mordecai, Esther's older cousin, who raised her, he refuses to buy. He, he stands tall. He, he stands with his head up high as Haman passes by. And it's, it's not hard to connect this with the devotion that he potentially or likely had to, to the one true God as a Jew. But in not paying homage to Haman, Haman was enraged. So much so that he didn't only want to wipe out Mordecai, but, but hatred burned him against, in him against all of the Jews that Mordecai represented. And so he goes to the king and he says in, in chapter 3, verse 8, King, there is a certain people that are scattered amongst the people of, our, of your kingdom. Their, their laws are different. They, they do not keep your laws. And so it's not profitable for you to tolerate them. Haman paints a picture of the Jews as, as a problem to be solved. And Haman suggests a solution. And the solution that he suggests is genocide. To which, without much thought, the king agrees. Then in chapter 3, verse 12 to 15, a decree is sent out to all the provinces. Chapter 3, verse 13 reads, letters were sent to all the kings of the provinces with the instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. On one day, Mordecai and his people would be purged from Persia. And it, it, it's this news that has broken, that has broken Mordecai in chapter 4 where we began this morning. He, he tears his clothes and weeps, knowing a day is coming when all the people of the empire will be commanded to turn on them to be hunted down and killed. And Esther has no idea what's going on. <laughs> Come on, Esther! <laughs> it's been about... Four years since Esther was taken into the palace, Mordecai is weeping outside the walls of the palace, so her servants come and tell Esther, we don't know what's happening either, but your cousin is he's mourning at the gate. So Esther sends someone to find out what Mordecai is, is doing. She sends someone called Hathak. And in chapter 4, verse 7, Mordecai tells Hathak everything. He, he even gives Hathak a, a copy of the decree to pass it on to Esther. And in verse 8, he tells Esther, Esther, do something. Say something. Speak up. Go to the king. And beg his favor. Plead with him. Use whatever power of voice you have. And now, all eyes are on Esther. And this is how she responds in verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or any woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except for the one 
whom the king holds out his scepter. Then she says, but as for me, I have not been called. And it's not hard to feel that there, there's an echo here of Queen Vashti. Vashti was called and she refused to go, which means a precedent has been set. Esther, defy the king. Esther, you haven't been called, but you too can refuse the king and go anyway. Break the rules. Will Esther finally find her voice? We also have to slow down here and ask, are we, are we reading the story right? You know, the story of Esther is the rise of a heroine. Esther should be remembered for her, her courage and finding her voice. But what we can get wrong is this story exists not to inspire us to further empowerment, but actually to encourage us when we find ourselves powerless. Esther's story has not been preserved to inspire us to be further in control, but to rest assured when our life feels out of control. You see, Esther's parents dying, it didn't make her an underdog, it made her an orphan. Esther, Esther was taken to the palace not because she had no motive, but because she had no choice. Esther's passivity and silence and lack of requests to help win the king likely speaks less to any lack in having not found herself and more likely to her simply not wanting to be there. A far more fitting way to read Esther, given the purposes of the book in pointing to God who still finds us and helps us in exile, is not to say Esther should have spoken up more, but to see that God still finds us and helps us even when we can't speak. Church, to be Esther is not to climb the career ladder, but to have never been given an education. To be Esther is not to be born able, but unable. To be Esther is to be in the shadow of Queen Vashti. To be Esther is not to be feeling resilient in your ability to climb to the top, but to feel lost in a foreign country and culture that's far from familiar. To be Esther is to be thought less of for using the very few assets you've been given at your disposal. To be Esther is to have not chosen the life that you're living, but to be swept along by a life that you have been given. Church life is a mix of what we are responsible for and often we feel to be, and then a large dosage of what we have been dealt. But the beauty of Esther's story is not in what she finds herself able to do or not able to do or what she's able to overcome or what she's not able to overcome. The beauty is in where she ends up regardless. At the end of chapter four, all eyes are on Esther. She has responded to Mordecai. What am I to do? What, you want me to, what do you want me to do? I, I haven't been called. And Mordecai responds first with some hard truth that she's in this with the rest of her people. Don't you think you're going to escape this decree, Esther? 
you're likely going to be put to death either way, Esther. Then in verse 14, he says something that catches Esther's attention. He says, look, if you are silent, I believe our people ultimately will still be delivered. Which is interesting. Mordecai points to a purpose and a plan for the Jewish people that is bigger than Esther and himself and this moment in time. It can only be assumed here that Mordecai is trusting in a plan he knows that God has that he believes doesn't end in the ultimate destruction of his people. But he does believe Esther's decision carries the weight of life and death. He, he knows what this decree will mean for families and husbands and wives and children throughout the empire. So he says, Esther, I don't know, but who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And there was something in this question that, that fires a spark in Esther. Immediately then, in verse 15, it says, Esther told, strong active, active verb, she told them to reply in verse 16, Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found and hold a fast. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my women will hold a fast as well. Then I will go to the king, and though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. Verse 17, Mordecai goes and does all that Queen Esther orders him to do. Game on. And what Esther, what happens next with Esther, you're going to have to come back next week to find out. I told you the tension, the tension is held. Come back next week. But as we begin to get to the end today, what was it about the question that Mordecai asked her that sparked in her such newborn courage and a sense of clarity and abandon to do whatever she possibly could for her people? Esther, what if you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Roger Spark, this is the big idea to take away with you today. Esther finds courage and a sense of responsibility in the realization that living a life out of her control did not mean that her life had not been perfectly positioned. Esther finds courage and a sense of responsibility in the realization that despite the circumstances that she had been dealt, despite the circumstances that she had been swept up in, she still had been positioned, positioned exactly where she needed to be. In fact, Esther's story speaks to the fact that God is more powerful than our previous passivity in positioning us where he wants us. He is more powerful than our family of origin. He is more powerful than the times we haven't spoke up. He is more powerful than when, when we have been taken somewhere we didn't want to go. He is more powerful than what has happened to us and what we have failed to make happen. He is more powerful than our past in determining our future which is not to encourage us to, to relinquish our lives to some kind of deterministic worldview that what will be will be. No, the point is where you are, you have been placed regardless of anything else. And nothing can compete with the sovereignty of God's perfect plan to give you responsibility that matters today. 
And so here are three ways that the story of Esther helps us in considering the placement in which God has positioned us. Number one, your placement does not determine your identity. Your placement does not determine your identity. Esther was placed in the palace. She was positioned as the queen of the Persian Empire, but it was not on the basis of her position that she received God's favor. Esther had been born an orphan with no parents. Esther had been caught up in a very questionable dating scene. Not all, and all along, God's commitment to her did not waver. When we give our lives to Christ, regardless of our position, our identity is determined. Who, who we are who we are, not due to what we do or where we get to. We are who we are due to whom it is who loves us. And to be loved by God is to receive a crown of glory and honor that never fades. In Christ, our identity as the children of God has been sealed. We were all orphans who have now been adopted into the family of God. Before Esther was queen, she was already a daughter of the king. Number one, your placement does not determine your identity. Number two, your, your placement does not need to be fought for to be attained. Your placement does not need to be fought for to be attained. We live in a, in a culture where, where timidity, slowness to speak, meekness, and patience can be viewed with suspicion as a, a, a negatively passive way to live your life. Wow. Is that loud for you guys? Too? Whether it's our own selves telling us we need to be more assertive or other people telling us we need to be bigger and bolder, and yet, church, in Christ, there is freedom. There is freedom to be shy. There is freedom to be quiet. There is freedom to be an introvert. There is a freedom to be small. There is freedom to walk away. God does not love you any less for you being you. We don't need to fight to be someone that we're not. And more than that, even when it's hard to view life as not working towards some kind of achievement, at the end of the day, our commitment as followers of Christ is not only to know the right ends for which we are to work towards, but to be committed to the right means through which we are willing to achieve any given end. Esther's placement gives us the freedom not to relinquish our faith, but rather to commit to means of achievement that are only aligned with Christ-likeness and leave the results in God's hands. If I perish, I perish, knowing that our ultimate placement and our ultimate achievements are always in God's hands anyway. Number one, your placement does not determine your identity. Number two, your placement does not need to be fought for to be attained. Number three, your placement is a matter of life and death. Your placement is a matter of life and death. What if you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? There, there was a moment in Esther's life that was make or break. There, there was a long season of wondering what decision she would make. And I don't, I don't know what, what long decision you've been trying to make. Ruth and I, when we first came to Chicago in our first small group, there, there was a family with, with two young kids. And one week they, they were there as a family of four. And then by the next week, the, the husband, the father, 
of the kids had emptied all of their bank accounts and was gone. Church, we don't need to be kings to write decrees of death. And you don't need to be a queen or a CEO or an entrepreneur to live a deeply, deeply meaningful and necessary life. Your placement as a friend, as a father, as a mother, as a neighbor, as a colleague is for such a time as this. And as I close, let me remind you that the greatest position of powerlessness that we find ourselves in is not related to our circumstances or the circumstances of our lives. It's not related to the family that we were born into or what has happened to us or what has not happened to us or what has happened to us along life's way. Our greatest position of powerlessness is that we were born dead in our sins and in rebellion from God. And so Esther's story is a story of hope, not to say Esther should have done more or Esther should have acted quicker, but to see that God still finds us and helps us even when we can't. The beauty of Esther's story is that regardless of what we're able to do or not able to do or we can overcome or we can't overcome, when we give our lives to Jesus, we find freedom and forgiveness from our sin and rebellion from God. And from that day forward, regardless of what it might feel like is happening to us, our position and placement is now, forever will be in Christ to be what is happening for us, for our good, for our joy, for our future. Let's pray, church. God, we thank you for your sovereignty over our lives. God, we thank you that we will get to the end of our lives, that we will see you and we will realize that every step of the way that we were led, that you had your hand on us, drawing us. God, I pray, God, that we would place all of our regrets and all of our past and all of our stories under your good, good hand knowing that there there is forgiveness of sins. There is a future that is sure and hopeful that we can look forward to. God, I pray that we will rest in your sovereignty. I pray that we will not fight when we don't need to. I pray that we won't try to be somebody we're not, but we will know that there is freedom in the gospel. God, make us that kind of church that people say, what is going on with these people? What have they find that gives them so much hope, that gives them so much peace? Make us that kind of church, I pray. In your name, amen.